0: Good morning everyone. Uh, My name is Tamina Roshan Lal and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome and thank you for joining us this very early morning for the educational activity entitled Manifestation of Gaucher Disease, Rare or Unrecognized, uh, Rare or Underrecognized. Today's program is supported by an educational grant uh, from Takeda Pharmaceuticals Inc. and brought to you by CME Outfitters an award-winning accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians worldwide. And again, um, I am Tamanna Roshan-Lal. I, I am a medical geneticist and the director of clinical trials at the Rare Disease Institute at the Children's National Hospital in Washington, DC. And I will be the moderator for today's program. Welcome
1: everybody. My name is uh, Dimitri Kranz. I'm um, Chair of Neurology at uh, Northwestern uh, Feinberg School of Medicine. I have been working on Gaucher's disease and Parkinson's disease for many years, um, initially at the Mass General uh, in Boston, where I spent most of my career. And I have also worked on therapeutic development uh, for Gaucher's disease and for Parkinson's disease. Good morning, everybody. I'm Dr. Neil Weinreb.
2: Uh, I'm a voluntary associate uh, professor in human genetics, even though I'm actually a hematologist at the University of Miami uh, Miller School of Medicine in Miami, Florida. And good morning. I'm Koi
3: Helderman. I'm a, a physician scientist and head of the multidisciplinary lysosomal storage disease clinic at the University of Florida.
0: So today we are going to be discussing uh, under-recognized manifestations of Gaucher disease. So the first objective is to, under, uh, to identify these clinical manifestations. The second is to evaluate the efficacy of current diagnostic methods in recognizing these rare symptoms, as well as to implement patient-centric management strategies within a MDT to optimize long-term outcomes of patients with Gaucher disease. So let's start off with a question, because that's the best thing we can do first thing in the morning. Um, Which of the following clinical manifestations of Gaucher disease is present in all patients upon diagnosis? All right, and the answer is none of the above because these symptoms don't occur in all of the patients. They occur in some of the patients and it can be varying symptoms. So, well done. Now, this slide is a quick overview on the different uh, GD classifications. As we know, uh, this condition is caused by biallelic GBA variants which causes uh, glucocerebrosidase enzyme deficiency. And traditionally, the classification is divided into type 1, type 2, and type 3. Um, Up to 1% of the general population uh, are carriers. However, this is 8% in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. And as you can see, there are symptoms that go across the board in all classifications. However, there are manifestations that are only seen in certain types versus subtypes. And uh, this is actually one of my favorite slides. It shows you how heterogeneous this condition really is because it spans over all the types and subtypes. Currently we have over 300 variants in the GBA1 uh, gene that has been identified. And there have been different um, variable effects on glucocerebrosidase uh, activity and different manif- manifestations based on these variants. So as you can see, patients present anywhere from being asymptomatic all the way to a very severe presentation of a uh, hydrops Vitalis in uh, type two Gaucher disease. You know, with GD recognition and diagnosis, often uh, there are a couple of routes that they come about where we can have, uh, where diagnosis is made. We have asymptomatic screening, so newborn screening seen in certain areas, genetic carrier testing, and that's mainly the asymptomatic uh, manner. However, it is quite a diagnostic odyssey for a lot of our patients. The first uh, healthcare provider encounter often does not raise any red flags for the patients because they often don't have symptoms or have very non-specific symptoms. And the referral process can continue until often a Gaucher disease expert has been, uh, um, someone's actually referred them to an expert. And this often can take many, many years. There was a survey done in the United States where one out of six patients with Gaucher disease had a diagnostic delay for more than seven years so you know it shows you how late sometimes it is before we can actually get these patients seen and treated so optimal timing of uh, the diagnostic um, of diagnosis is actually very crucial because delayed diagnosis and unclear timing of initiation of patients means delayed management therefore you know although we know bone and visceral manifestations are often one of the more important symptoms to look out for, there are many other presentations that are under-recognized and that is what we were trying to bring across in our presentation today. Ideally, multidisciplinary care would recognize and monitor for all of the above, uh, to optimize treatment as well, quality of care. And the rest of the presentation today will will focus on these under-recognized manifestations as well as how we go about managing uh, the symptoms.
1: So let me start by introducing and neurological manifestations of um, Gaucher's disease. And I'm not going to go through all the details on this slide, but just to mention that there are uh, neurological manifestations that are linked to different subtypes of um, uh, Gaucher's disease, including Parkinsonism, which is um, going to be the main topic of uh, my presentation today. So when we first started, Thinking about the link between Parkinsonism and Gaucher's disease, we were struck by the relationship of multiple lysosomal diseases, such as Gaucher's disease, to um, more common neurodegenerative diseases. So one of them, obviously, that we're discussing today in more detail, is Gaucher's disease that has been shown to be linked to Parkinson's disease, both clinically, genetically, and um Pathologically, so patients who had Duchenne's disease were noted to uh, uh, to be more likely to develop Parkinson's disease, but also their uh, parents who were heterozygous carriers uh, were noted to be more likely to develop Parkinson's disease than general population. So that was really the clinical observation that led to this um, research. But also, patients with Duchenne's disease uh, whose brain was examined post mortem were noted to have pathology in the brain that was very similar to pathology that's observed in Parkinson's disease. I just want to mention here, even though this is not the topic today, but there are um, other lysosomal diseases that are linked to more common pathologies. Uh, For example, Neiman-Pick C, it's a lysosomal storage disease, and pathology in Neiman-Pick C patients resembles Alzheimer's-like pathology with plaques and tangles uh, in the brain. San Filippo is another lysosomal disease that's linked more to frontotemporal dementia. And, and you know, there, there are many other examples, but I just want to mention that these relationships between rare lysosomal disorders and more common neurodegenerative diseases actually provide an opportunity for some interesting therapeutic opportunities for, um, for more common conditions.
0: Let's go on to our next Question, which of the following clinical features of Parkinson's disease is most often the presenting symptom in patients with GBA1-associated Parkinson's disease? All right, so it seems 26% say bradykinesia and 26% say I don't know and the answer, and 33% for resting tremors, and the answer is actually uh, bradykinesia. Um, All these symptoms can present, however bradykinesia is the more common symptom that we see.
1: So um, we have worked on this relationship between Gaucher's disease and Parkinson's for many years now. Initially, as shown on this slide, we have observed that mutations in GBA, so GBA is the mutation linked to uh, Gaucher's disease, and the gene in GBA codes for glucocerebrosidase or GCase. And we found that patients who have mutations in GBA have decreased lysosomal GK's activity, and they have accumulation of lipid substrates in lysosomes. And we've seen this um, phenomenon in patient-derived neurons that we create from, um, you know, we obtain patient skin fibroblasts. We reprogram those skin fibroblasts to stem cells. And from those stem cells, we can create patient-derived neurons. And in those neurons, we were able to see that mutations in GBA uh, lead to uh, dysfunctional lysosomes. And we have also shown that um, this dysfunction is sort of specific, at least not specific, but it's preferentially seen in uh, dopaminergic neurons. And these are the neurons that are affected primarily in Parkinson's disease. And we have noted that in those neurons, when GBA is mutated and GKs is dysfunctional, there's accumulation of alpha synuclein. And alpha synuclein, in turn, can also affect trafficking of GKs to the lysosome, creating this feedback loop that's sort of self propagating and detrimental to neuronal function. So, just to summarize that feedback loop so, decreased lysosomal GKs leads to accumulation of synuclein. Increased synuclein leads to impaired trafficking of lysosome or GKs to the lysosome, even the wild-type GKs, not just the mutated GKs. So this was really our important, I think, initial discovery that wild-type GKs can also be affected uh, in Parkinson's disease, which has then been replicated by many other groups, showing that even when you don't have a mutation in GBA, uh, GKs activity in Parkinson's models can be decreased. And this is an important observation because it, broadens the therapeutic opportunity for GBA um, and GKs in Parkinson's disease. I'll talk about that in a minute. So, um, as I mentioned before, there are patients who have um, Parkinson's disease due to GBA mutation, and, and that mutation in heterozygous carriers increases the risk of Parkinson's disease. Especially in um, certain populations like Ashkenazi Jewish um, uh, pe- uh, patients. And we also noted that even people who have just sporadic Parkinson's disease, they can also have low GKs activity, even though they don't carry a mutation. So the relationship between GKs, GBA, GKs, and Parkinson's disease goes beyond that initial observation. Uh, of uh, GBA mutant carriers, um, also people with wild type uh, G-Case uh, gene also have decreased activity of G-Case. So that's, that has really led to um, an interesting therapeutic development that we pursued in my lab and other people have pursued that. And it's also, um, you know, one thing that's mentioned on this slide is ambroxol, right? Embroxol is, is currently in clinical trials. But just to say that all these clinical trials or initiatives are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to get more GKS into the lysosome in patients with Parkinson's disease. Because we have seen and many groups have seen that activity of GKS in the lysosome is deficient. So how to get GKS into the lysosome? Ambroxil is an example of a chaperoning approach where Ambroxil would chaperone GKS into the lysosome Gene therapy, they're trying to replace GKs in the lysosome and in neurons with using gene therapy approaches. The company that I found that is using small molecules, uh, newly discovered small molecules that are activating GKs um, in patients that have decreased activity. And as we just discussed, most patients with Parkinson's disease have decreased activity of GKs. So these are different approaches that um, are being used therapeutically. Uh, obviously, none of them has succeeded yet, but there are some clinical trials that are ongoing, and we hope that we will see some success um, with these uh, translational approaches. I just want to end by saying that there are other neurological um, abnormalities observed in the populations of Gouche's patients, for example, neuropathies, although we don't exactly know if these neuropathies especially the large fiber neuropathies are due to Goucher's disease. There's some suggestion in the literature that they may be side effects of enzyme replacement therapy. And the small fiber neuropathies are more likely to be due to Goucher's disease. So that's really the spectrum of neurological um, symptoms and signs in patients who have Boucher's disease that I wanted to summarize today.
3: I'm the resident uh, oncologist, hematologist here, although Neil is also. Um, so, this uh, slide shows a, a typical board uh, uh, question for hematologists, which is this uh, tissue paper cytoplasm cell. And so, if you do a bone marrow biopsy, uh, this is what the pathologist will, will see and will we'll call you back and, and say, this person might have Gaucher disease, uh, hopefully, if they're astute. Um, so, Getting to fundamentals, lysosome is essentially the digestive uh, organelle for the cell, whether it's extracellular or intracellular components. Those get encapsulated or endocytosed and then get trafficked to the lysosome, which is a nice acidic compartment that also has uh, uh, lysosomal hydrolases that digest uh, and cut down uh, various things. And it's thought that most of the lysosomal hydrolases that exist there, uh, traffic through the Golgi, get uh, glycosylated <clears throat> usually with a terminal uh, mannose 6-phosphate, sometimes with a terminal mannose, and then get bound by either the manose or the mannose 6-phosphate receptor, and through a receptor-dependent transport, uh, the predominance of those get traffic to the lysosome with a sub-fraction that gets traffic to the, to the cell membrane. And the enzyme gets excreted, and then exogenous enzyme can actually be taken up, which is the principle of enzyme uh, replacement therapy. When there, there's deficiencies in those, and those lysosomes distend, what you can often see is a signaling through toll like receptor, through innate receptor, uh, innate immune uh, functions, and you get an up-regulation of various cytokines TNF alpha, IL 6, IL 10 etc. And those cytokines then have subsequent effects uh, on the rest of the body, uh, so they can contribute to things like osteopenia, like monoclonal uh, overall hypermetabolism, activation of platelets, and consequent activation of the complement system. Uh, and that can contribute to bleeding risk as well as thrombosis risk. And before initiation of enzyme uh, therapy, platelets are low, uh, we do see increased uh, bleeding and perhaps some increased clotting, and this usually improves with treatment. However, we don't get every cell with enzyme replacement, so we still see a persistent platelet aggregation defect, sometimes minor, sometimes major, uh, which can interpret to increased bleeding risk during pregnancy or high-risk procedures. And we see elevated D-dimers as well as depletion of Adam PS 13 So when you have patients with Gaucher disease in the hospital and they're very ill and you're thinking DIC or you're thinking, uh, you know, a consumptive uh, thrombotic picture, you may get fooled by these uh, assessments. And it's been shown that up to half of patients have persistent mild to moderate clotting factor deficiencies, usually the 5, 10s, uh, 11s, and 12s which we don't typically put at the top of our differential of, of uh, clotting factors. A very common manifestation actually, but one that we may not think about as often is <clears throat> before they start ERT especially, but even after, <clears throat> you get microocclusive problems in the vasculature. And these can lead to osteonecrosis and avascular necrosis, and you get bone marrow infiltration, which increases the marrow proportion in the cells and so you get Erner and Meyer deformities, you get uh, marrow infiltration, and then you, these avascular necroses don't heal mm. and they don't repair well. And so you have patients who have minor incidences in the bone, but then those grow over time even on ERT. So the gentleman on the far right uh, had a minor avascular necrosis of the, of the humoral head and now has complete frozen shoulder. And of course, a more common manifestation is hepatosplenomegaly, but those microvascular occlusions and that that storage in in the uh, macrophages can happen also in the pulmonary vasculature, so you get interstitial fibrosis. And when you get interstitial fibrosis, you can get atelectasis, which can cause fevers. So you'll have a picture that may look like an atypical pneumonia, in addition to the hepatosplenomegaly. Also of note, when you're seeing these large livers and these large spleens and, and these patients who have inflamed livers, um, you'll also occasionally get liver lesions. And these are... So there's, there's one uh, condition that, per the uh, ASCO guidelines, you can diagnose without tissue biopsy, and that's hepatocellular based on MRI uh, washout uh, with dedicated MRIs. But not all hepatocellular carcinomas wash out typically, especially in Gaucher patients. So when you see a lesion, be a little more uh, predisposed to to getting a biopsy. It may be a Gaucheroma, it may be a hemangioma, or it might be a hepatocellular carcinoma. Indeed, there is an increased cancer risk in Gaucher patients. Uh, The most common of those is increase in monoclonal glomopathies, which subsequently uh, predisposes to multiple myeloma. That is the largest uh, risk component, also an increased risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, the hepatocellular carcinoma that I just uh, discussed, and probably several other cancers, although the the relative risk is not quite as large. So, to summarize, you need to keep an eye on the liver and the spleen to look for these lesions, and and biopsy lesions that are new or are growing. Uh, Need to frequently monitor the CBC and the CMP, And you need to be checking SPEPs to look for that monoclonal gammopathy and a progression of that. If your patient's about to undergo a uh, procedure that's predisposed to bleeding, then performing some platelet function uh, tests and coagulation tests would be uh, an appropriate measure so that you can have appropriate uh, factors available uh, to supplement. And bone assessments both pre-initiation as well as ongoing uh, periodically to look for evolving changes in the bone uh, that your friendly neighborhood orthopedist can help you with. And you also need to be uh, checking bone density because they are not going to maintain their bone as well.
2: Thanks very much, uh, Coy, thank you. Uh, My assigned task today is to discuss some other atypical manifestations associated with Gaucher disease. I think we may have a little bit more time than we expected, so I I realized that when we put this together, we probably didn't mention, I'm not sure if it's an atypical manifestation of Gaucher disease, but it deserves to be mentioned, and that's uh, the interaction between Gaucher disease and pregnancy, which uh, we had not discussed over here, but of course, in the context that uh, Dr. Haldeman mentioned about bleeding problems, uh, we know that for many patients, the diagnosis of Gaucher disease, uh, type 1 Gaucher disease can be established. In the context of pregnancy, uh, especially in association with delivery, postpartum, when bleeding can be a particular concern. Uh, Actually, happy to have Dr. Debbie Elstein, who's in the room over here, who's published some of the uh, early important literature about managing Gaucher disease during pregnancy, uh, the role for treatment, which uh, we will touch on a little bit when we. Uh, discuss treatment uh, towards the end of this presentation, but I did want to mention the issue of pregnancy since it is an important one and uh, there can be significant complications during pregnancy, especially the bleeding complications, occasionally some loss of uh, fetuses, uh, which occur in untreated patients. So that's a, uh, I think it was a good idea to at least uh, to touch on that. For the rest of this uh, mention of atypical presentations, I'm going to concentrate primarily on pulmonary disease. I was going to say that uh, my wife tells me that uh, I can and sometimes do talk about Gaucher disease in my sleep. Uh, I will try not to uh, test that hypothesis too much today. Uh, So pulmonary uh, manifestations do occur in patients with uh, Gaucher disease. Actually, it's an interesting conundrum when one realizes that probably the single organ in the body which has the biggest population of macrophages is the lung. And the truth of the matter is that we don't see an awful lot of uh, clinically significant pulmonary involvement in patients with type 1 or the so-called non-neurotopathic Gaucher disease. You would wonder why would that be the case when there's such a macrophage-rich organ available to cause trouble. And I'm not sure that we actually have a definite answer for that. I and mean, we can contrast that to acid sphingomyelinase deficiency, where uh, pulmonary involvement is actually a major symptomatic manifestation of the disease and a major cause of morbidity and even potentially mortality. And so, why accumulation of sphingomyelin does affect the long, why accumulation of glucocerebroside, at least. Uh, in the type 1 disease does not seem to be a major causative of uh, pulmonary involvement. Uh, I think it's still something that needs to be looked at, uh, whether it's a function of resident macrophages in the lung versus macrophages which are derived from the bone marrow. I think that's, uh, I don't know of any evidence for that yet, but that's one of my possible uh, areas where I think further investigation could be done. Uh, one area where there had been a lot of uh, concern in the early days about, uh, pulmonary involvement in Gaucher disease was the issue of pulmonary hypertension, which uh, for a time uh, prompted us even to have guidelines suggesting that patients should have uh, testing for pulmonary hypertension, both children as well as adults, uh, even to the extent of having right heart catheterizations done. I think as time has gone on, that's become less of an issue. Uh, There have been a number of publications which suggested that splenectomies, which used to be, before we had other treatments available for Gaucher disease, splenectomy is a provocative uh, cause for pulmonary hypertension, whether it's done for Gaucher disease or for any other uh, condition for which splenectomy is sometimes indicated. Uh, And since we fortunately, with the advent of modern therapy, now rarely see splenectomies being done for individuals with uh, type 1 Gaucher disease, similarly, pulmonary hypertension seems to be a very rare uh, phenomenon, and I think that's again one of the accomplishments of therapy, that by eliminating splenectomy and some of the complications of Gaucher disease, which are linked in part to the performance of splenectomy, we're sparing a lot of patients uh, travail in, in that particular regard. Now, as far as some of the other manifestations, which you see on the slide here, uh, I think we do see in patients with type 3 Gaucher disease, Uh, significant pulmonary involvement in contrast to the majority of patients with type 1 disease. It's true occasionally you can see some evidence of uh, alveolar infiltration in a type 1 patient and there have been some atypical pulmonary developments related to autoimmune disease. I had a patient who one time died of uh, bronchiolitis obliterans uh, with an autoimmune hemolytic anemia and that seemed to be part of some of the autoimmune phenomena that can occur in individuals with uh, type 1 Gaucher disease, but as I say, generally that's not a problem for us. But in type 3, there's absolutely no question that uh, pulmonary involvement is a, uh, a real concern. Uh, some of the better studies that have been done uh, have come to us from studies of the Egyptian population. Uh, again, we've had uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Maggie Abdul Wahab uh, has written on the subject and in her group of patients, and you'll see a reference in this slide uh, as well to uh, uh, a publication by Dr. and. Uh, uh, We know that uh, even children can develop progressive pulmonary involvement, eventually sometimes even progressing uh, to pulmonary fibrosis. Oftentimes, uh, pulmonary involvement is associated with repeated pulmonary infections. There's some evidence uh, based on Maggie's work that uh, preventative antibiotics may sometimes be useful in preventing some of those infections. And again, the cycle of repeated infections, repeated inflammation. Uh, in other pulmonary diseases uh, of hereditary nature, uh, certainly in cystic fibrosis, promotes uh, a, an unending cycle of progressive damage that may also partly, at least, be uh, the case in some of the individuals with uh, 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 with type three negotiated disease who have pulmonary involvement. Another contributory factor you'll notice is a restrictive lung disease. Some patients with type three develop a very characteristic severe kyphosis. Uh, the etiology of which we continue to be somewhat uh, uncertain of. Uh, It's not just due to collapsed vertebrae and the orthopedic problems, Uh, maybe related in some way to connective tissue abnormalities, but as that kyphosis proceeds, uh, it it certainly can contribute to restriction, especially if there is accompanying hepatosplenomegaly which further creates uh, pressure from the abdomen on the lungs. we occasionally have seen patients with hepatopulmonary syndrome. This is, again, usually in individuals who had advanced liver disease with cirrhosis and eventually development of uh, shunting, uh, which is what results in this hepatopulmonary syndrome. It does sometimes respond to, uh, to therapy as well. Uh, one other uh, area related to cardiopulmonary disease, which uh, has come up uh, in a recent publication from uh, the group in Serbia, Uh, where they actually did investigate individuals with type 1 Gaucher disease and we know that they all had in their group of about 20 or so odd patients, we know that they had type 1 disease because every one of them had an N370S uh, mutation as part of their picture. Although again, uh, there were only a couple with homozygous N370S and most of the other alleles were those that are associated with severe uh, manifestations of uh, Gaucher disease. They did a study of uh, these patients where they actually put them through exercise testing and they were able to show that uh, with, you know, reasonably sophisticated uh, oxygen measurements and so forth, uh, the Gaucher patients that they tested all seemed to have some element of uh, inability to compensate for exercise with decreased, with uh, an inappropriate compensation with increased cardiac output, which is what obviously happens when we exercise. Uh, There were also some issues with oxygenation. Uh, They did not have anemia. There was no evidence that uh, there were secondary causes for this. I'm not aware that other people have done such investigations. They also found that their patients were underweight. That has been reported uh, by the Dutch group years ago, uh, and it's believed that untreated gaucher patients are hypermetabolic. So again, this is something that hasn't been uh, previously really investigated in depth. Uh, Perhaps it relates in some way or other to some associated autonomic neuropathy. Uh, We have seen such type of autonomic neuropathy in type 1 patients involving the GI tract occasionally. So again, these are interesting, but not necessarily uh, typical manifestations. Now, with regards to uh, actual cardiac disease, there is one variant of type 3 Gaucher disease, which is called type uh, 3C where cardiac involvement is extremely significant and can be life-limiting unless it can be dealt with. So, this case here is a a good example, a 13-year-old girl with a six-month history of severe shortness of breath with exertion, uh, orthopnea, and symptoms typical of congestive heart failure. Uh, Her past history indicated that uh, even when she was uh, an infant, uh, she was believed to have some eye movement impairment. Uh, and she was found to have enlargement to the liver and spleen, but uh, she did not have a subsequent uh, definitive type of workup, unless, uh, she eventually developed anemia uh, and thrombocytopenia, and then presented with this uh, cardiac, uh, picture of cardiac failure with uh, major heart murmurs and abnormalities, which uh, I think you may be able to see on the slides. Uh, both in echocardiography and then as you go over to the right side of the slide in uh, panels B and C, if you look closely, you can see calcification in the aortic root uh, and also in the uh, coronary artery outlets. uh, And this is a picture of this cardiac calcification, which is absolutely classic for this type 3C disease. It is for all intents and purposes associated with uh, homozygosity for one specific mutation, D409H. Uh, It was described many years ago in uh, Palestinian patients by Ari Zimran and his group. But it's seen all over the world. This type of type 3 disease is seen in Japan, uh, in other areas in the Orient, uh, and it's encountered occasionally in uh, uh, Europe as well. We probably see some occasional cases here in the United States. Uh, I guess this is, we're up to a question at this point.
0: <laughs> right. So, uh, which rare GD phenotype is associated with uh, this presentation? And I believe that was for the slide, the cardiac manifestation case.
2: Yes, so. re- related to this case. Okay, so it's quite clear that everybody here, well, it's the overwhelming majority here has picked the correct answer. Uh, they just wanted me to comment a little bit about uh, saposin C deficiency, a very rare cause of I've actually been corrected when I call it Gaucher disease. it i been pointed out, it shouldn't be called Gaucher, but it should be called cause for glucocerebrosidase deficiency, uh, usually associated with uh, significant uh, neuronopathic disease. I think there's only one case report of a type 1 with uh, mm-hmm. Saffircin deficiency, and I'm not sure if it's uh, valid or not. Uh, Norbotin uh, type 3 Gaucher disease is uh, a very important uh, element of type 3 disease. It's seen, uh, it, started, uh, it was first described in the province of Sweden, but it's seen uh, in other European countries, Poland, uh, the contingent in the UK. Uh, and again, it is associated with a very marked heterogeneity clinically. Uh, patients can have very prolonged survival, especially, and this is key, if they have systemic treatment for what are usually severe systemic manifestations of Gaucher disease. It's very important because there are still some places in the world where authority for enzyme treatment uh, is not given by the regulators unless you're verified as having type 1 Goucher disease. And uh, that's tragic in the case of individuals with uh, uh, these types of type 3 disease because uh, many times their life and function is not limited by their neurological involvement, but it can be severely impacted by their systemic involvement. And there are patients with good treatment who are living now into their 50s and 60s very, very productive individuals. They work. They have virtually no intellectual impairment. So again, that's a, a very important point uh, to keep in mind. So with going back to this uh, case that I uh, presented before, uh, the initial management was actually in terms of cardiac or you know, cardiovascular surgery. Uh, there was a resection of the calcified thoracic aorta, uh, valve replacements, uh, replacement of the uh, roots of the coronary arteries uh, and then the patient was started on appropriate enzyme uh, therapy and the patient did, has done and continued to do, as at least at the time of the case report, extremely well. So in this case, the cardiac surgery was actually life-saving and it's unfortunate that there are still many type 3C patients who do pass away but primarily because of cardiac disease which with modern surgery may be amenable to intervention. The last of the uh, atypical presentations, uh, Dr. Helderman uh, alluded to uh, gaucheromas or nodules in the liver and the spleen, uh, which uh, we, sometimes, we do refer to as gaucheromas because when they are biopsy, there are collections of just masses of sheets of Gaucher cells. But these can occur in other sites within the body, sometimes in paravertebral locations. I actually had a patient who was diagnosed with Gaucher disease Type 1 when she was 86 years old, when she presented with a mediastinal mass, which actually turned out to be a gaucheroma. And uh, she was actually started on treatment and did very well for a number of years and died at age 94 uh, when she developed uh, acute leukemia. But uh, uh, again, there can be other, as you can see in that picture at the bottom, a rather dramatic uh, collection. We still don't really understand fully the, uh, the mechanisms behind gaucheromas. It's certainly not a neoplastic lesion. And again, whether or not it just is a perpetuating process where, which starts off with macrophages initially come in to clean up something and then because they're Gaucher macrophages, they hang around as uh, Gaucher cells. But uh, again, it's important to, to recognize this. Uh, if it does involve the paravertebral area, it can sometimes, as with other paravertebral tumors, uh, regardless of their cause, lead to uh, paraparasis or you know, severe functional impairments. So at this point, I guess I... Uh, we're supposed to finish up by a, a very quick sort of standing-on-one-leg review of uh, the treatment for Gaucher disease. Uh, enzyme replacement therapy is still, I think, uh, properly regarded as being the gold standard treatment. It's now been uh, available to patients for more than 30 years. It certainly has had a major impact on the, the prognosis, quality of life, and uh, outcomes in patients with Uh, type 1 disease, and as I say, I think as well for type 3 if one excludes the neurological involvement for which, unfortunately, enzyme replacement therapy does not provide any direct benefits since it does not uh, traverse the blood-brain barrier. Uh, But uh, I think there are some general statements that we can make about enzyme replacement therapy. Uh, it, It does have to be given intravenously. There continues to be a very varying degree of sensitivity to enzyme in terms of dose. There are some individuals uh, who seem to be explicitly sensitive and can respond to very low dose therapy, which is good for them uh, uh, and good for society economically. Uh, but there are other individuals who unquestionably need higher doses and the key here is that patients need to be followed carefully when they're on treatment. They have to be critically assessed and treatment needs to be adjusted in accordance with their response, achievement of certain therapeutic goals and In a certain sense, it's not a good idea to be overly dogmatic about dosing. I think the key is to individualize treatment and to adjust it uh, to the lowest dose, which is effective and which controls all the symptoms of of disease. Uh, There are currently, in the United States, three uh, preparations for enzyme treatment available. As you can see, there's imiglucerase, which is the older of the three is in, was the second one on the scene around 2010 and which is a plant-derived product uh, which is uh, not approved in many countries in Europe but is used in the United States and in other uh, countries. Uh, there are also now starting to be some generic preparations that they call imiglucerase which is quite confusing because you know, it's especially when we're trying to track patients, we're not 100% sure if they're outside the United States what product they're actually getting. Uh, But the responses have been very, very dramatic. uh, And uh, just summarizing them quickly, increase in abnormal hemoglobin uh, levels and low platelet counts uh, very reliably occurring within a couple of years of starting treatment, if not sooner, reduction in spleen and liver size uh, oftentimes by uh, 70 or 80 percent. Although again, splenomegaly usually remains a little bit even with enzyme therapy. Uh, When studied, there have been Frequent increases in abnormally low bone mineral density. Again, doesn't always occur, especially in older patients. The responses are not uh, as favorable. Uh, and uh, in general, control of some of the bone manifestations, uh, especially osteonecrosis. Uh, and uh, eventual joint deterioration uh, has been, again, a big accomplishment of enzyme replacement therapy, although with some uh, limitations. And I mentioned before the uh, elimination of splenectomy. Uh, now, there are limitations of enzyme replacement therapy, uh, it's not a cure. Somebody mentioned the word cure yesterday in association with Gaucher disease. We still don't uh, have that, certainly with enzyme therapy. Uh, there still continues to be some evidence of uh, cytokine uh, turn on, which can be persistent even in patients who seem to be relatively well controlled. And that may have consequences in terms of some of the emergence of malignancies, uh, which we're not by any means convinced yet are prevented uh, with enzyme replacement therapy. You heard about Parkinson's disease before which uh, occurs uh, both in untreated patients, also in uh, carrier patients, but it can occur in treated patients as well. Uh, there's no evidence that treatment uh, prevents somebody from developing Parkinson's manifestations later, uh, later in life. Uh, and then there are stills, as you can see in the uh, kaplan meyer curves, which is from a paper that we published on severity scoring in Gaucher disease. Even individuals with relatively mild disease, uh, shown in that yellow bar at the top, can develop osteonecrosis even 10 or 15 years uh, after starting treatment. And then in the ones who have more severe disease, and particularly post patients, uh, there's actually a very significant incidence of recurrent uh, osteonecrosis, even with uh, therapy. Uh, because of some of these limitations, there's been some, as well as the uh, desire to try to avoid uh, invasive therapy and repeated infusions, there's been interest for a long time in developing uh, oral small molecule treatments. The ones that are clinically relevant at the present time uh, all uh, uh, hinge on uh, inhibition of glucosylceramide synthase, uh, which uh, can be done successfully with the two products. that are available. Miglustat was the first one on the scene in the early 2000s, and it has been used successfully for treating individuals, but unfortunately, uh, it does have uh, off-target side effects in terms of inhibition of intestinal disaccharidases, which lead to problems with osmotic diarrhea, which sometimes cannot always be successfully controlled with anti-diarrheal medication, and it can be a real problem for patients who either then either reduce their dose to ineffective levels or discontinue it. The newer uh, treatment which has been available and approved in the United States since 2014, Eliglustat, is also a somewhat more potent glucosylceramide synthase inhibitor. It doesn't have uh, the same off-target effects as uh, uh, Miglustat uh, and a number of patients have been successfully switched from enzyme therapy uh, to the substrate reduction therapy there are some patients, however, who still prefer to stay on enzyme replacement therapy for various reasons. Uh, some patients have even switched back occasionally from uh, substrate reduction therapy to uh, enzyme therapy. Uh, again, there are limitations for substrate therapy as well. The l that does not... Successfully achieve uh, therapeutic concentrations in the CNS, so it has not been a, a drug or an alternative for treating uh, neuronopathic manifestations. There's investigation going on right now of a, uh, uh, a, a second generation substrate reduction inhibitor uh, for which there's some early uh, suggestions that there may be some benefit in type 3 disease. Uh, there are restrictions in terms of the metabolism of elglustat uh, which is metabolized by the cytochrome uh, particularly c2d6 uh, patients who are rapid ultra rapid metabolizers cannot be treated successfully uh, at least at the doses of elglustat that we use so again it's not for everybody these drugs also cannot be used during pregnancy whereas ert on the other hand uh, although there's never been a formal study, but there's been a lot of observational information, which I think convinces everybody that ERT can be used successfully during pregnancy and should be used during pregnancy uh, in order to prevent complications even as early as the uh, the first trimester. So I'm going to conclude my talk uh, uh, with uh, just mentioning that uh, how do you actually decide what to recommend in terms of treatment since we do have uh, effect, effective therapies? So, as a recommending physician, what, what, what do you do? How do you choose? That's certainly a challenge between choosing between the three effective enzyme therapies that, that are currently available. Uh, how do you urge a patient in terms of substrate oral therapy as opposed to... Uh, uh, ERT, and I think the the bottom line, as in virtually all areas of medicine, is that the best approach is one where there's shared decision making with the patient, uh, with their family members, whether they're adults for that matter or children, uh, and introducing the patients into the uh, by increasing their knowledge, taking the time to explain not only the natural history of the disease but also the pros and some cons of treatment, they can, I think that's the best position for uh, getting a successful approach and for getting adherence to therapy, which I must say, even with enzyme therapy and with the uh, annoyance, if you will, of every two week or even every three or four week therapy, invasive therapy, the adherence of patients has been absolutely amazing in some of the published studies that we've had. So again, the slide leads you with with the idea of incorporating the patient, I will say, we still have a responsibility of physicians to make what we think are our best recommendations. Uh, you can't just leave a patient hanging out there. Okay. You do have to take a position, but that obviously should be based on what your best judgment is. And then I would have one other thing about shared, uh, shared decision-making. Uh, there's an uh, aphorism in the, uh, the Talmud that says that the, the fate of the best physicians is to end up in hell. Uh, It's a loose translation, of, and people wonder what that's supposed to mean. And the traditional interpretation is what they're talking about is those physicians who think that they're the best physicians uh, or are convinced that they're the best physicians uh, are the ones who are going to end up down there uh, because they're going to get into trouble at some point or other. So, again, I think all of us, even as, as expert as we think that we are, it's always very useful to consult with colleagues. There are always people who have seen something that you haven't seen, And I know that most of us who are dedicated to Gaucher disease are very, very happy to answer questions and to have people call us. And you know, we interchange among ourselves. I urge you to do the same.
0: So let's wrap up with uh, some smart goals to apply into practice. After today's program, we hope that you will be able to help reduce the di- diagnostic delay of Gauthier disease by considering it in your differential when patients present with both characteristic as well as underrecognized manifestations, as we have talked about today. To collaborate within a multidisciplinary team to provide holistic monitoring and individualized management of all manifestations of Gauthier disease, to integrate a patient-centric biological, psychological, social, and emotional factor and factors into their treatment planning where we use shared decision-making approaches between the patients, caregivers, as well as the medical professional. And applying knowledge of the benefits and limitations of ERT and or SRT to optimize long-term monitoring as well as supportive management strategies for patients with Crochet disease. Now, uh, with that, now it's our chance to uh, answer some of the questions that I have gotten through uh, this program. So, I have one question and I think this question is for you Dr. Helderman. What is the role of alpha-fetoprotein to differentiate between different liver lesions in Gaucher disease prior to deciding if a liver biopsy should be performed?
3: (coughs) That's a good question. So yes, an alpha-fetoprotein would be elevated in, in a fair proportion of hepatocellular carcinomas. Uh, it's not 100%, but it's a high proportion. So if you have an elevated AFP, you, you might uh, lean towards presumption.
0: So, Dr. Weinreb, we had talked about uh, man, uh, man, you know managing when you manage your patients. You talked about which treatment to use and using a an integrated approach. What are your thoughts about ERT and SRT combination from the start?
2: Uh, it's not again according to the labels it's not suggested to be done that way i'm i am aware of a, a small number of patients uh who have been started on combination therapy uh because either they've developed uh, uh resistance or allergies to uh, to ert uh I'm talking about now children because again, children are not eligible for eliglustat therapy uh, at the present time in the absence of of a study yet, uh, which is hopefully going to be done. So when you have uh, teenagers or even younger children who seem to have resistance to ERT, uh, switching to substrate therapy has sometimes been done, but there have been some who continue uh, even with SRT to be symptomatic, and uh, they uh, they have been treated sort of uh, on compassionate uh, protocols. Now, there's another area we, I didn't touch on actually is we didn't deal with the issue of uh, lymphadenopathy in uh, patients with Gaucher disease. And there have been some, uh, if you look carefully, you can probably find some enlarged lymph nodes uh, in, all, in most uh, patients with Gaucher disease. But there are some who actually have very dramatic, uh, almost a combination of uh, in- invaded lymph nodes with Gaucheromas, uh, sometimes associated with protein-losing enteropathy. Uh, this is a very difficult thing to treat, and these are individuals who probably should in principle be candidates for combined therapy since they don't really respond brilliantly or if even at all to enzyme therapy. We don't know. We would like to think that because of the small molecule, the better tissue penetration substrate therapy might be a way of approaching that, but I think it's still uncertain. But I think this would be another area where combined therapy would be uh, definitely a consideration.
0: Um, so, Dr. Haldeman, that is a really interesting question out here. Um, should we screen everyone for glucocerebrosidase deficiency before splenectomy?
3: Before splenectomy. Well, I mean, there are a lot of indications. Well, I'm not going to say a lot. There are several indications for splenectomy that have nothing to do with uh, Gaucher disease. So, gosh. <coughs> um, I don't, and in several of those cases, you don't necessarily have enough time Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, do a screening. But if you've got an unknown reason for uh,
2: splenomegaly, then absolutely. I I would second that, by the way. Mm -hmm. you know, there are a number of published uh, algorithms for working patients up for you th- where you might think about Gaucher disease. And I think particularly speaking for hematologists, the tendency there is to think of everything else that you can possibly think of before you think about Gaucher disease. And I would submit that given the ease of doing diagnostic testing for Gaucher disease, I would like to see my hematology and oncology colleagues move it up in the algorithm, do it earlier rather than later. It's, uh, you know, again, it's not expensive to do testing it's easily available and if you really don't have some other obvious immunologic diagnosis there's nothing wrong with testing and in fact it's possible even now to combine it with testing for acid sphingomyelinase deficiency and at least that way you may pick up some more patients so that's uh, my one of my own crusades is to try to move uh, and think about uh, Gaucher disease earlier on even though many times you won't make the diagnosis or it won't be that, that will not be the diagnosis but uh, rather than keep it to the, the end of the uh, differential diagnosis.
0: So Dr. Weinrat, we talked a lot about uh, pulmonary manifestations. So there's a question here saying that given the prevalence of pulmonary manifestations in G 3 what are your thoughts about exploring additional and complementary ways of delivering Gaucher-specific therapy via inhalation?
2: Uh, I really can't comment because I have no experience with it, but uh, uh, so I, I guess the only answer there is the honest one which is I don't know and I don't know if anybody has actually tried to do it that way it's, uh, uh, and how effective it would be whether it would, uh, but uh, there are surprising things with enzyme therapy. Harry Zimmerman, for a time actually showed that you could uh, administer it orally if you, uh, uh, and it is relatively acid resistant, so it's, uh, so there was, that didn't go too far, but it's not out of the question that it could be absorbed uh, uh, you know, it, it, through inhalation.
0: I have to say for a 6.15 morning session, you guys have some amazing questions here. Well done. Alright, so there's a question here about what is the status of adding um, Gautier disease to the RASP? Um, so as a pediatrician, as well as a geneticist, I can tell you there's a lot of controversy going on on that right now. It's currently not on the RUSP. it is being done in certain states. And there are a lot of uh, different states where people within the committee are having disagreements whether they should be even added on. So this is still a process, uh, still ongoing, so stay tuned. Right, um, there's a question here about the cardiac manifestations. So someone in the audience has a GD3 patient with severe cardiac manifestations who needed a heart transplant. Do you know of any other cases and or the evolutions? And I think this is open to both Dr. Haldeman and Weinra.
2: Requiring a heart transplant?
0: Yeah. Do you know, Do you know of any other cases that had a similar cause and you know what were the outcomes and the evolution?
2: No, I don't. Uh, again, there, if anybody in the audience has, uh, we have. I know we have some experts here who have seen. Uh, if Anybody has anything to contribute? But uh, yeah. You no know, valve replacement. Yeah, but in terms of heart transplant, I, in, in principle, I suppose it's,
0: uh,
3: it's no reason
2: why not. I mean, it's. Right. Uh, there's also been some question even about for with advanced pulmonary disease if there should be a lung transplants done as well right. too. So again, these are you know certainly individual cases and I'm sure they will show up as it becomes possible to do all of this stuff now.
0: All right. So there's a question here. Could you please comment on neuropathy in GD three patients? And is there any effect of FRT uh, of ERT? Um so ERT, you know, does not cross the blood brain barrier, therefore neurological symptoms, very very rarely we see any sort of uh, effects. Often for our patients who have a neuropathy, we have to send them to the neurologist to get, um, maybe be treated by gabapentin or, you know, some other drug that helps, but ERT usually does not help with the neuropathy.
2: Again, one of the things in the adults with neuropathy, it is important to make sure that they don't have monoclonal gammopathy or right. Or certainly myeloma, which again can sometimes itself contribute to peripheral neuropathy. And again, that's one of the more common uh, malignancies which uh, seems to occur with increased frequency in individuals with Gaucher disease.
3: Yeah, and I, yeah, I've certainly seen peripheral neuropathy that actually attribute to the bone disease that causes constriction. Uh, so if you get an, an avascular hip or a vascular shoulder <coughs> with. Uh, formation of structure uh, Mm -hmm. that can actually cause nerve impingement.
0: So, there's an interesting question here and I think this is a question a lot of uh, clinicians think about. For the both of you, what are your thoughts about switching from SRT to ERT? How or when in your practice, in your day-to-day practice, how do you go about making that decision?
2: Uh, Okay, Uh, there are occasions. I mentioned before that you, you actually have to do uh, cytochrome P450 genotyping before you can start a patient on Uh glustat uh, That genotyping is not quite as precise as, okay. uh, as you would like to think, especially in terms of the way the eliglustat is labeled, and there can be overlaps, and uh, again, you really have to look at the actual genotype results closely uh, rather than just the categorization that people have. So for example, so I did have a patient who I started actually as a naive patient on eliglustat uh, therapy who, uh, after many months, didn't seem to be doing anything. Uh, she was classified as a normal metabolizer. Uh, and. I had never seen anything. Nothing. No reduction in liver or spleen. Uh, uh, so after 12 months, uh, I actually uh, at that time we were able to get drug level studies, which are not usually available now. Uh, but uh, so by doing that, we found, I found that she actually never achieved any normal well, any plasma concentration of the drug. So she must have actually been a rapid metabolizer, rapid right. metabolizer who was misclassified. So that's a, I mean an obvious example of therapeutic failure where you would switch. Uh, there are some patients who have switched. Uh, for reasons which are hard to understand, uh, not scientific reasons, but uh, they just, uh, these were especially patients who have been on ERT for a long time. They figured, you know, some of them might sort of talked into going into the, uh, I don't mean by the physician, but whatever, but uh, to go on to uh, uh, the L-Aglustat, and they just felt they felt better on ERT than they were less. So, you know, fatigue is a very common complaint in individuals with O'Shea, uh, mm-hmm. which we don't really... Again, understand, uh, whether it's, if you want to get fancy and relate it to cytokine, uh, it's usually not related to anemia, uh, some, it, it some may even be some mild depression that can occur, but it's a very common symptom. Uh, and so some patients claim they were less fatigued when they were on ERT and we were taking uh, L-A-glustat, so they wanted to switch back. Uh, then there were some who wanted to switch back because they liked going to the, to the clinic. Right. Because they turned into a social outing for them, uh, they had friends there. They either the staff or other patients, and you know, it was something to do. So I, I mean, it sounds bizarre, but it, but it's actually a, a valid uh, observation. And uh, so some of them wanted to switch back. And you know there was a paper recently published you know, related to people switching back from SRT. Uh, sometimes, you know, occasionally there are some side effects. They didn't. Uh, Eliglustat does have some. GI side effects, especially in the form of dyspepsia, and, uh, which again, some people have had dry skin with it. Uh, so we've had people switch back uh, uh, on occasion, although the, the overwhelming majority do not. Uh, but it does occur. Yeah, well, I, I, would, I would echo that. Uh, sh- shared decision making. <clears throat> I've had a,
3: a, a few patients who switch. Mainly it's for GI side effects. Right. Uh, and it is surprising how many patients uh, develop relationships with their infusion nurses and infusion staff that they wanna maintain.
0: Well, thank you very much everyone. It looks like our time is up today. Thank you for joining us and uh, please don't forget to complete the uh, post-test and evaluation online so you can collect your credits that you have deserved and you've you know, worked hard for today. It's been a pleasure and thank you all very much.